Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. And this week we ask, why is the age-old principle of free speech coming under new pressures? From campus rows about safe spaces and rather more serious curtailments of free speech by autocracies and further clampdowns on liberal principles of self-expression in the name of religion or other sensitivities, commitments to uphold free speech are under threat. There is a tradition that the parks are free. Free for speech and free for demonstration of our The language coming from Donald Trump is hateful. From the mosques of the Middle East to the seminar rooms of American universities, a growing number of people are claiming the right not to be offended. But that revives an old debate about the limits of free speech. John Stuart Mill, the most prolific great 19th century British liberal philosopher, argued that freedom of speech was an absolute unless it caused approvable harm. But in the following century, the American philosopher Joel Feinberg proclaimed that free speech wasn't such an absolute good that harm to others shouldn't be weighed more fully in the mix. Well, we've devoted our cover this week to the implications of multiple assaults on free speech today and what we might do about them. Joining me later will be our foreign editor, Robert Guest, and Europe correspondent, Emma Hogan, both of whom have worked on our coverage. But first, I spoke to the Oxford academic, Timothy Garton-Ash. He's just published a major survey of the dilemmas involved. It's called Free Speech, Ten Principles for a Connected World. And I started by asking him if that more connected world was throwing up fresh tensions. There's no question. We've never lived in a world like this before. Something like three billion smartphones in the world going on four billion. The effect of mass migration plus the internet plus smartphones is that everybody is becoming neighbors with everybody else. If you live in a city like London, either you meet them on the tube or you meet them on YouTube. And the conditions in which we think about free speech are therefore transformed. It's not just a set of rules for one country. You have the First Amendment in the US. We have common law in England. You have Indian law in India. It is some sort of principles that can apply across frontiers. Are those principles then more difficult to define and to put into practice, given that there are so many different nuances, let alone sometimes rather vast and often violent differences across borders. Self-evidently, because that which is totally inoffensive in Toronto is explosive in Lahore. And the classic example of this is the innocence of Muslims' YouTube video. Some idiot puts a, a video 
deeply offensive, stupid video about the Prophet Muhammad online in Southern California. Six months later, people are dying in Pakistan and Afghanistan in protests against this video. And protests are being seen outside U.S. embassies, although the U.S. administration, President Obama, had absolutely nothing to do with it. And this is another feature of this world, which is what I call the private superpowers, that actually what Facebook and Google and Twitter do is at least as important as what France or Germany or Britain do. I don't want to suggest that you've bitten off more than you can chew, but you have got there a lot of very different cultures with different views of what free speech is and where it should begin and end. So what makes you think you can have universal principles? If we don't, we're done for. Since everyone can hear what everyone else is saying, uh, if we have a different set of rules in every place, there'll still be chaos across frontiers through the internet. So we've got to have some element of what I call, uh, forgive the jargon, normative convergence. We've got to try and agree on some basic principles of how we agree to disagree. Even people who say that they favour free speech possibly do up to a certain point. And I'm thinking of examples of so-called hate speech or the preaching of violent fundamentalism that stop short of saying go out and plant a bomb, go out and conduct an attack, but which can be seen as a permissive environment. Now, if one thing is close to the other, where do you draw the line about where free speech applies and where it doesn't? Indeed, not just some people. The British government is currently proposing under its new counterterrorism legislation to criminalise, in some circumstances, non-violent extremism. Uh, So much for Karl Marx, (laughs) so much for some of the great thinkers of the Western tradition. My view is that we have to hold the line at violence. What about the language of hatred and denigration, though? That is not physical violence. But would you say that the state has no role in stopping me or having the the right to to punish me if I go onto the street and use language about someone's skill and colour, their ethnicity, in a way that is intended to denigrate, to make them feel small, to push them out of the way in the workplace? The state has no role in getting involved here? Why not? I argue that mature democracies should be dismantling hate speech laws. If you look at the United States, an incredibly diverse society which has no hate speech laws, it doesn't have people making racist chants at football matches. If you look at France, which has masses of hate speech laws and people routinely making monkey chants at football matches, there is no clear correlation between the existence of hate speech laws and a reduction in racism or prejudice. My argument is that you fight the prejudice through civil society, through culture, through good journalism, not by the criminal law. I think there's a piece of research in our reporting which says that younger people seem to want to be protected more from unpopular or views that they find offensive than those older than themselves. What might that be down to? This is indeed fascinating and very worrying. So if you think of us as a British university at the moment, there's a threat from the government which wants to impose a so-called prevent duty to prevent even non-violent extremist speech. And on the other side, we have our students, often from the most privileged and free societies in the world, introducing the practice of no platforming, saying they want safe spaces. So there's an argument to be had on 
both sides, and I think we have to stand up for some basic liberal standards in their interests as well as ours. Now, the interesting question is, why are they demanding these safe spaces? What is it about this generation who've actually grown up with a rough and tumble of the internet, which is much more abusive than in my childhood? Maybe it's partly because of that. Maybe it's partly because in some ways they've been spoiled. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure that in their long-term interests as well as ours, we have to draw the line at this practice of no platforming. Have you ever found yourself constrained in anything that you said or, or imposed a constraint on yourself or changed the way that you expressed yourself? Well, self-restraint is a quality of liberty. It's a quality of civilization. Of course, I limit myself. But have I felt intimidated to say things? Um, I'm very fortunate. I've grown up in a very free country. I've, you know, I spend most of my life with dissidents and people who've been fighting for freedom. So on the whole, not... But it is, of course, the case that when you get to the subject of, say, Fit Mohammed these days, well, you have to think about it. And there is actually an awful lot of self-censorship about, particularly in that area. But even in countries where liberal freedoms are very established and very cherished, and I'm thinking of modern-day Germany, there are extraordinary things that, that, that happen at the moment. Uh, we're talking in the context of an ongoing saga in which a TV satirist, Jan Burmerman, uh, ended up uh, being threatened by the Turkish president, Mr. Erdogan, with a lawsuit over a particularly biting satire directed uh, at him. The German government didn't seem to back him up and it seemed to then fall to a major German publisher to ride to his defence. How odd is that? This is a fascinating case. I mean, first of all, it shows you the world of... Uh, neighbors we're in, which I write about in the book, because this is the Turkish president taking offense at something done purely on German television and then using an obscure German law that dates from the late 19th century on Les Majestés, originally to defend the Kaiser, to defend his honor. Um, I think it is a great pity that the German government let the prosecution go forward because they could have stopped it. They had the right by law to do so in this very obscure and peculiar provision of the penal code. But I have to say the reaction of German public opinion and German media has been magnificent. But there are tides that turn in this argument. And if you look at a country like Poland, that seemed to be heading, at least when it came to speech and expression, in a, in a direction of freedom and liberalism, and yet now, not so much. What's happened there? Yes, you know, a year ago, we were celebrating the 25th anniversary of Polish freedom and saying, great success story. Right on cue comes along a government, um, neuters its constitutional court, but also takes control of public service television so that so it's like watching your favorite public service broadcast and suddenly seeing all the faces of the presenters change overnight i watch a lot of polish television it's really quite shocking it's no longer called public television it's called national television and it's got to give the national point of view but hang on if this liberalism this appetite for freedom of speech is great as you say in a country that you love very much know very well why was this able to happen Part of my answer is because liberalism has been triumphant for 25 years and it's become boring to many young people. If you're going to be against what is, 
what is is liberalism, so you're against liberalism. But I have to say, the other day there were tens of thousands of people marching through the streets of Warsaw precisely to stand up for free speech and democracy and Europe. Thank you, Timothy Garton-Ash. And to dig even deeper into the threats that freedom of speech faces today, I've invited our foreign editor Robert Guest and Europe correspondent Emma Hogan into the studio to talk through some of the issues that their coverage raised. Remember, if you want to join their conversation, please use your right to speak up by tweeting us at Economist Radio or you can email us radio at economist.com. Robert, The Economist has dedicated its cover no less to free speech in this week's issue. Why do that right now? The main reason is because it appears that things are getting worse around the world. We've done a lot of reporting from different places, from China, from Bangladesh, from Egypt, from Europe, from America on campuses there. And there's a big spectrum, but the, the bottom line is, although the world has gotten a much freer place over the past 30 years, it's got less free in terms of free speech over the past five. And that's something we need to uh, make a lot of noise about. So give me your main examples on that. If someone were to say, well, this has always been a rather patchy outlook in different parts of the world, why do you think that there is something decisive now that tilts against free speech? We've seen a lot of governments using technology and also just using straight old-fashioned repression to roll back the gains of of free speech. China is a really big one. Under Xi Jinping, it's become clear that they're much more aggressive about censorship. They're keener to lock people up. Uh, They're locking up more dissidents, more journalists. And they've even done ridiculous things like sort of telling economists that they should do happy talk when talking about the economy. And this this, this cuts right to the center of, of policy. You can't have a sensible discussion of the Chinese economy if you're telling economists to shut up and toe the party line. Emma Hogan, if we were to look to the democratic world, would we see an altogether healthier picture. I know you've been doing a lot of the reporting from Europe. What did you find? Europe is not as bad as places like China and Pakistan. But if you compare Europe, I think, to its standards sort of 10, 20 years ago, it has got worse. So, for example, I was in Spain, I was in Madrid, where two puppeteers in February performed a, a puppet show in which one puppet accuses another of glorifying terrorism. Those puppeteers were then imprisoned for the charge of glorifying terrorism. So they were prosecuted under a law which has been on the Spanish statute books since 1995, really is quite an old-fashioned law. And we have a lot of laws like this in Europe. We have seven EU countries have blasphemy laws. There are laws against insulting heads of state. Traditionally, there's been a feeling of, well, it's fine to have these laws because they're not going to be used, but they can be used and they can be misused as well. We see a lot of coverage from American campuses of quite bitter and quite divided arguments about free speech being balanced in the minds of quite a lot of young people with ideas like microaggression, safe spaces, ideas which would give protection to their views or an attack on their identity. Do you see this as part of your overall concern about the retreat of free speech? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, the people on American campuses are not doing what uh, the people who wish to suppress free speech in Bangladesh are doing and cutting people up with machetes. But it's part of the same argument, which is people have this notion that people have a right not to be offended. And if you claim a right not to be offended, that means you're claiming a right to police someone else's speech. 
This generational shift, did you actually do any research, Emma, or, or, on what it, what it means? Does it really exist? Is it perhaps just in our perceptions? I mean, there's been a lot of media coverage of this sort of no platforming in, in Oxford University and in universities in England. But not for the first time, because I can remember this from the 1980s. So has anything exactly. changed? Well, when you look at the data, I mean, the Pew Research Centre in America uh, did a survey of, of Europeans of what they think about free speech. And most people think that there should be free speech, but they also have slightly conflicting views and that they think governments should be able to intervene in cases of sort of people saying things about minority groups. But when you actually crack down into that data, uh, you can see that young people are more likely than older people to think that governments should intervene. Um, so for example, in England, people think that young, sort of 18 to 29 year olds think that the government should intervene if people say things that are rude about a religion. In France, uh, younger people are more likely to think that the government should intervene if, if minority groups are offended. But the one I found really startling was it in Germany, uh, sort of 18 to 29-year-olds were more likely to think than their elders that the government should crack down on the media from reporting um, large protests. If we look at the history of the way that we've treated so-called hate speech, many societies have chosen to have laws in place either because they believe that they express their commitment to liberal democracy that says you shouldn't go out onto the, the street uh, and shout some sort of invective at someone based on their, on their skin colour. You wouldn't want a teacher in a classroom using slighting language to children based on their ethnicity. These seem to be quite sensible ideas that prevent harms. What's wrong with that? Everywhere where you give someone the power to suppress other people's speech based on subjective measures, those rules are abused. So, for example, in France, Brigitte Bordeaux has been prosecuted, criminal prosecution, five times for so-called hate speech because she has argued, and this is a perfectly rational argument, that the way uh, halal butchers treat animals is cruel. Now, you can agree with that or disagree with it, but the answer to it is more speech, not locking up a former movie star. And you see the same thing in India, which, interesting, I mean, Tim Garton Ash, his phrase for India is it's the swing voter on free speech. And they have incredibly detailed laws dating back to the colonial era on types of speech that may not be allowed. And it, they are so broad and so vague. And it's anything that sort of slightly discomforts any group or type of person. And these are used by the government to shut down critics of the government, to arrest them, to put them in prison. It's a terrible tool. So it is. Emma Hogan, I wondered if you shared any of my slight scepticism here that we were skipping over something that comes to the fore really in the late 20th century, which is an awareness that mental harms can matter, that people can be very much harmed by being called certain things. And that's why there's been a bit of a creep on language. We possibly don't use some of the words that we would have used some time ago. And I think it's, it's Joel Feinberg, really, the American philosopher, who makes the, the big sort of attack on... Jess Mill and says, actually, you do have to take words seriously. Offence matters. Perhaps it matters a bit more than, I'm not going to say should check his privilege, but that Robert Guest has just outlined. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting in Timothy Garton Ash's book is he says, you know, there should be a right, not a duty to offend. And I think that that is the distinction that needs to be made here. The idea that you have free speech does not necessarily mean that you then go about saying dreadful things about other people. It is good to be polite. I would fully agree with that. Yes, However, absolutely. I would not want the government to be uh, in any way the judge of what counts as politeness. In any way, not just politeness, but the, the harm that your words could cause to someone much more vulnerable than yourself. I do not think that is something that the government can judge unless you are specifically 
advocating physical harm to somebody else. There's also a question here about how effective these laws are in terms of, you know, in 1947, it might have made sense to have a Holocaust denial law, right? And But nowadays, I mean, in terms of Holocaust denial, there's no real evidence that having these laws on the statute book stops people from denying the Holocaust. On the contrary, you find that when you have hate speech rules, uh, hate speech laws or even hate speech rules in schools, it encourages people to be more thin-skinned. It encourages them to start seeing themselves as parts of groups rather than as individuals. It encourages them to take offence, and that leads to social disharmony, not harmony. Timothy Garton-Ash laid out 10 suggestions or principles, as he put it, for extending and protecting free speech. Robert, which would be most important to you based on what you've written and edited in this report? I think that there should be a very strong presumption that speech is allowed and that the the principles that the Americans have or uh, the American government has, the First Amendment, probably the best speech regime that there there is in the world at the moment because it places an enormously high barrier to those who would attempt legally to suppress speech. Emma Hogan, your principle to take away? There should be a free press. That's one of the main ways in which voices can be heard, that people can see what's going on in society and in where, in where governments can be held to account. Emma Hogan, Robert Guest, thank you both very much. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to The Economist Asks. And if you want to join our conversation on free speech, do tweet us at Economist Radio and follow our coverage at economist.com. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh. The joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.